Tonight's reading is from 2 Samuel, chapter 13, verses 1 to 15. Amnon and Tamar. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister, Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a crafty man. And he said to him, Oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I, might, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cake she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with her, with which, sorry, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. This is the word of the Lord. The prophet Nathan had predicted that the sword would never depart from the house of David. And that prediction is coming true very rapidly. David has been forgiven for his crime against Bathsheba, but he is about to taste the bitter consequences of his behavior. The main characters are introduced in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister 
whose name was Tamar, and after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. The narrator of the Samuel books likes to point out physical beauty. Saul is a very attractive man of large height. David is ruddy and handsome. Uh, Tamar is very beautiful. Later we'll hear that Absalom is uh, a handsome and beautiful man. And yet, tragedy befalls each of these people, and it's as if the narrator is saying, uh, there is more to life than physical beauty. And in fact, sometimes it can bring great peril. A thoughtful commentator makes this observation on verse 1, two males surround a female. As the story unfolds, they move between protecting and polluting, supporting and seducing, comforting and capturing her. Further, these sons of David compete with each other through the beautiful woman. Now, the text makes an odd claim. It says that Amnon loved his half-sister. But we have to ask, especially if we've read ahead, what kind of love is this? Our text says that Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for Amnon to do anything to her. Hebrew law theoretically protected Tamar, and Amnon, the prince of Israel, cannot have what he wants, but he has learned a thing or two from his father. He has learned that when you can't have what you want, you take it. The influence of a father's example is powerful. The young man is tormented. He's even made sick by his attraction to his sister, to his half-sister. I uh, emailed a friend this week who is uh, bravely recovering from sexual addiction, and I Uh, I said, would you read this story and then just share um, some comments about how you see it, given given your journey? This person's worked very hard at pursuing recovery. And he wrote me, he said, Amnon clearly exhibits sexually addictive behavior. In verse 2, the author says he was tormented by his compulsion to sleep with Tamar which then presumably developed into the phenomenon of craving, which leads Amnon to what sex addiction counselors call the ritual stage, where addicts actively make preparations for the sexual fantasy to become a reality. Amnon uh, lives long before any of our uh, conversations about sexual addiction and pornography and, and all of that, but his torment... Uh, being obsessed with desire, and the, the word indicates a kind of internal conflict, is something that uh, many men, and, and women too, struggle with every day. Uh, porn sites get more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. Um, and since pornography is often linked with violence against women, I, I ask my friend as, as I was preparing about preaching on this text, after I decided to, for several hours I thought we'd just move on, because um, this is a hard word. 
But I said, I asked him this question. I said, do you think I should address uh, addiction to pornography in this sermon? Because it's not exactly what it's about. And he said, or he wrote, many churches focus too much on sexual sins and view pornography as the singular issue. That is, if men just stop viewing porn, everything will be fine. The problem with this thinking is that it fails to understand the true potency of pornography, which is incredibly addictive, more so than alcohol or other chemical drugs, Plus, porn and lust are only symptoms, not the root issue. Struggling with porn is a symptom of a much deeper spiritual problem. If those deeper emotional and spiritual problems are not addressed, no addict will achieve any lasting sobriety. He will not deal with the underlying causes and conditions that led to the addiction in the first place. Deep resentments, anger, rage, fear, control issues, codependency, irritability, selfishness, egocentricity. I fought my sexual addiction for 15 years, and the more I fought, the more it fought back. All my willpower seemed to empower lust rather than hold it in check. My guess is Amnon fought for months, maybe years, before he gave in and began making preparations to sleep with Tamar. Well, soon we, we see that Amnon does not love his half-sister. She becomes an object, not a person. Uh, this young prince, like his father has become obsessive and self-absorbed. If he had truly loved her, he would have desired her good above his own and subordinated his sexual desire to that end. And this goes without saying, but uh, if, if a young man says to you, single ladies, I love you so badly, you must sleep with me, uh, run. Uh, he has proved to you that he does not love you at all, and that he is more concerned for his own needs than yours. Well, Jonadab, a crafty friend, develops a bizarre scheme to enable Amnon to rape Tamar. And the prince is to fake sickness and protest that he'll only accept food from his sister. But Amnon needs David's help to carry out this rape, and so he asks his dad to send his sister to help feed him. And David passively agrees and effectively contributes to the rape of his own daughter. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house to prepare food for him. Now, I know you need to take and affect culture and, uh, when you study things like this, but let's just, let's just say it. That's a really creepy request um, at any culture at any time. <laughs> When a full-grown man says, uh, Daddy, I feel sick today. Send my sister to make a couple raisin cakes. David is clueless, checked out, utterly passive. He seems utterly unaware of the deadly family dynamics unfolding in his own house, and he has totally abandoned his daughter. And that is often one of the most painful wounds of sexual abuse. You know, sexual abuse in a family doesn't just happen. It happens because the family engages in a conspiracy of silence. Everyone looks the other way. The warning signs are there, but nobody heeds them. Nobody challenges the abuser, and the abuse goes on for years. Well, this strange plan is effective. Tamar goes to Amnon's house and makes him cakes. Amnon dismisses everyone else, invites her into his bedroom, and our, our translation says, come lie with me, sister. The, the Hebrew is, is more vulgar. She resists him every way she possibly can. 
First she pleads, she says, you know, this shouldn't be done in Israel, you know, the family of God. And then she gets more personal and says, you know, what am I, where am I going to go with my shame if I'm a raped woman in Israel? And she looks to him, she says, you're going to be known as a fool. And then finally, in desperation, she says that, you know, the king will let us marry, which violated the law of Israel, but David didn't seem to care much about that. So, but anyway, Amnon does not give her a chance, he forces himself on her and rapes her. And the bluntness of the author's description conveys the horror of being raped. Uh, but he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. The term force means to oppress or to humiliate. Rape is an abuse of power against a person who's weaker physically than you. Probably some of the most troubling verse, the most troubling verse in the entire Bible is verse 15 of 2 Samuel 13. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. Desire has become hate, once his lust is satisfied, he loses his interest in her. And, uh, the, the, the gentleman that I was having the dialogue on email with about sexual addiction also said that it was quite likely that he was filled with disgust for himself and, and remorse and that that is also part of the deadly cycle of addiction. Tamar sensitively tries to reason with him. She says, please, brother, don't send me away. He is irrational. He is the prince. He is not used to accepting advice. He expels Tamar, calls the young man who serves him, and and, uh, says, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. And he has essentially uh, cut off all hope she has of livelihood, all hope she has of ever being married again. Uh, He has sentenced her to homelessness and being a social pariah. And he has no idea, of course, how he's impacted her psychologically, and he doesn't appear to care. Uh, in 2010, the United States government uh, did a phone interview with nearly 20,000 women, and nearly one in five responded by saying that they had been raped or experienced an attempted rape at some point in their life. So this is not an ancient problem. Uh, One-third of the women reported being raped, beaten, or stalked you put those together. The consequences of uh, the sin that Amnon has committed against his sister, sexual violence, sexual abuse, are profound. I'll just read a few lines from a report on the psychological consequences of sexual trauma, particularly when it occurs earlier in life, but I think it applies generally. Survivors of childhood sexual trauma are at high risk of post-traumatic stress disorder, According to the American Psychiatric Association, the diagnostic criteria includes exposure to a traumatic event that invokes intense fear, helplessness, or horror, and a range of symptoms, such as recurring recollections or dreams of the event, persistent avoidance of all things associated with the trauma, numbing and lack of responsiveness, and increased alertness to perceived threats. In a recent study, women who reported childhood sexual abuse were five times more likely to be diagnosed with PTSD compared to non-victims. 
Survivors are also more likely to suffer from depression, suicide, and other mental health problems. Childhood sexual trauma may also affect certain developmental processes, such as the ability to develop and maintain relationships. Distress experienced by adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse may also be related uh, to the use of particular coping strategies. Uh, Survivors may use different coping behaviors to protect themselves from negative feelings, thoughts, and internal conflict. Uh, Extreme experiences of victimization are also associated with symptoms of a personality disorder known as borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder is characterized by enduring patterns of instability in relationships, goals, values, and mood, non-fatal suicidal behavior, and suicidal threats. Tamar is a very brave woman, and she refuses to be silent. She refuses to cooperate in the cover-up, and so we read, And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. So she essentially uh, lets the whole kingdom know that she's been raped. She didn't have to do that. It is exceedingly difficult for a rape victim to talk about this publicly. In January of 2015, a Stanford University freshman raped a woman behind a dumpster after a party. He was caught running away by two men riding by on their bikes. And when he was sentenced this June, the victim read him a letter. Uh, It's excruciating reading, but I would encourage you to read it. And here is how she describes the impact of the crime on her, and I'll just read a paragraph or two. The victim writes, In newspapers, my name was, quote, unconscious intoxicated woman, unquote, ten syllables and nothing more than that. For a while, I believed that that was all I was. I had to force myself to relearn my real name, my identity, to relearn that this is not all that I am, that I am not just a drunk victim at a frat party found behind a dumpster while you are the all-American swimmer at a top university, innocent until proven guilty with so much at stake. I am a human being who has been irreversibly hurt. My life was put on hold for over a year, waiting to figure out if I was worth something. My independence, natural joy, gentleness, and steady lifestyle I had been enjoying became distorted beyond recognition. I became closed off, angry, self-deprecating, tired, irritable, empty. The isolation at times was unbearable. You cannot give me back the life I had before that night either. While you worry about your shattered reputation, I refrigerated spoons every night, so when I woke up and my eyes were puffy from crying, I would hold the spoons to my eyes to lessen the swelling so that I could see. I showed up an hour late to work every morning, excused myself to cry in the stairwells. I can tell you all the best places in that building to cry where no one can hear you. The pain became so bad that I had to explain the private details to my boss to let her know why I was leaving. I needed time because continuing day-to-day was not possible. I used my savings to go as far away as I could. I didn't return to work full-time as I knew I'd have to take weeks off in the future for the hearing and trial that were constantly being rescheduled. My life was put on hold for over a year. My structure had collapsed. I can't sleep alone at night without having a light on like a five-year-old because I have nightmares of being touched where I cannot wake up. I did this thing where I waited until the sun came up and I felt safe enough to sleep. 
For three months, I went to bed at six in the morning. I used to pride myself on my independence. Now I'm afraid to go on walks in the evening to attend social events with drinking among friends where I should be comfortable. I've become a little barnacle, always needing to be at someone's side, to have my boyfriend standing next to me, sleeping by me, protecting me. It's embarrassing how feeble I feel, how timidly I move through life, always guarded, ready to defend, ready to be angry. You have no idea how hard I've worked to rebuild parts of me that are still weak. It took me eight months to even talk about what happened. I could no longer connect with friends, with everyone around me. I would scream at my boyfriend, my own family, whenever they brought this up. You never let me forget what happened to me. At the end of the hearing, the trial, I was too tired to speak. I would leave drained, silent. I would go home, turn off my phone, and for days I would not speak. You bought me a ticket to a planet where I lived by myself. Every time a new article came out, I lived with the paranoia that my entire hometown would find out and know me as the girl who got assaulted. I didn't want anyone's pity, and I'm still learning to accept victim as part of my identity. You made my own hometown an uncomfortable place to be. You cannot give me back my sleepless nights, the way I have broken down sobbing uncontrollably if I'm watching a movie and a woman is harmed. To say it lightly, this experience has expanded my empathy for other victims. I've lost weight from stress. When people would comment, I told them I've been running a lot. There are times I did not want to be touched. I have to relearn that I'm not fragile. I am capable. I am wholesome, not just living in a week. Why, why uh, read all that? Um, and as I prepared, I, I wondered if I would. Two reasons. One is, I think human beings, and maybe it's Christians in general, I don't know, but Many of the people I care for and love minimize what's happened to them. And so one of the things that I, I, I want to say by, by presenting you this data is uh, if you were raped or sexually abused, whether you're a man or a woman, and this is also a very big problem for men, uh, you can't just say, well, that was a long time ago, or, well, I had prayer for it, or, well, I thought it was over. Uh, it's a very serious thing that's probably having impact on you now. And if you're struggling in things in your life now, that may be a cause. Uh, it may be linked to the abuse that you experienced. And the other reason sounds almost too obvious to say, but I'll say it. I, uh, a member of our church, Laura Bryant, and I were talking yesterday, and I said, what, what are you going to do today? She works at the university. She says, I'm going to go over talk to freshmen about consent. And, and I said, you mean... You mean kids come into the university and don't understand that you shouldn't have sex with someone who's passed out? They don't know that, really? She said, really? Beloved, particularly young hormonal men experiencing your first few beers away from school. If a woman is drunk... Cover her with a blanket and take her back to her dorm. Protect her. Don't touch her. And if you ever are in doubt, think about this lady's story, about the damage you could be doing to her for the rest of your life. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? 
Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. I don't know what to make of that response. It certainly doesn't seem very compassionate. One of the things he probably is saying is, um, look, sister, he's a prince. Give me time and I'll take revenge. Then it says, when King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he'd violated his sister Tamar. And so you have this pathetic picture of an angry king who does nothing. Does nothing other than yell at his servant. This is a pitiful picture of what happens when a leader is passive. Two years pass. I won't read all of the text tonight, but Absalom waits for time to get revenge. He finds a particular time when uh, everyone's going out to a sheep-shearing carnival, which in that period would have been a time where there'd be a lot of drinking. And he arranges for Absalom or Absalom arranges for his servants to kill Amnon when he's drunk. The rape of Tamar has been avenged, and now Absalom can be free to ascend to the throne. And then what you realize is is Amnon doesn't really care for his sister either. He's just using a rape as an opportunity to gain the throne. And she's pushed aside in the story, and we never hear from her again. Now, there's a few more details. Amnon goes into hiding. The rest of the princes run back to Daddy. Daddy weeps. He's so upset. Doesn't do anything. And there's no justice for Tamar in this story. So what do God's people do with a story like this? Well, one way to answer this question is to let this terrible story do its work. Great films and great literature does not usually come with an application guide at the end. Uh, There are sad stories in Scripture because if we let them work on us, they will lead us to repentance. Uh, Phyllis Tribble, in, in her book, Texts of Terror, writes this, If art imitates life, Scripture likewise reflects it in both holiness and horror. By enabling insight, stories like these may inspire repentance. In other words, sad stories may yield new beginnings. I do think it's helpful, however, to put this text in the broader context of the big story of Scripture. Uh, Because what this terrible, terrifying text uh, is, is a part of a bigger story in which God is bringing healing to the world. And so when the kingdom of God comes in Jesus, one of the things that Jesus is often doing as he proclaims the kingdom of God is he proclaims healing and he performs miracles and he, he prays for the sick and he, he heals them. And so this is something that we need to keep in mind when we read a text like this. We need to read it in the light of the cross. We need to read it in the light of the resurrection, in the light of the healing resources of the Holy Spirit. God heals. 
God heals sexual addicts. God heals the victims of sexual violence. God heals passive fathers. Now, this summer, uh, Trevette and I have been emailing back and forth a lot about healing, doing a little reading. We've talked about maybe offering a healing service or something this fall, one night a month. I've been thinking a lot about healing later and lately and thinking about my own experience of it. Um, while I have never seen someone raised from the dead by the power of God, um, I have seen men and women healed from sexual addiction. It's not easy. It's not quick. But God heals the sexually addicted. And the first step towards that is bringing, uh, bringing your sin into the light. That's the hardest part. And I, I've tried to figure out a least threatening way possible to do that. And, I, and I'm going to suggest this. If you want to begin a journey towards healing and recovery from lust and pornography and sexual addiction, just... Email me your name, and there are a couple of men in our body who have been walking this road faithfully for a while, and they will meet with you, they will connect you with resources, and uh, help you realize that you're not alone in this. God heals the victims of sexual violence. Again, it's not easy, it's not quick. If you'd like to take a small step towards that tonight, uh, we do have some gifted women in the chapel who just want to talk with you, pray with you, and hopefully introduce you to some resources that can help you take this journey. There's only one thing about this I'm sure of, Almost all of it I'm not sure of. This I know. You'll never get free alone. God just didn't make us that way. You can read the best online posts and go to all the conferences and seminars. You are made in the image of a Trinitarian God. You need other people to become whole. And as my friend emailed me back today, he said, the opposite of addiction is connection. And so the best thing you can do for your family and for you is to take that first step and connect. Let's pray.